welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you're a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Ken Cameron. And I'm Russell Stratton. Sometimes difficult conversations suck, but you need to have them. So in every episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, we ask e-leaders about the most difficult conversation that they've had with their employees, co-workers, suppliers, customers, or even their boss. We ask them how the F they managed to get through these challenging moments so you can learn from their successes and from their missteps, all so that you can become a better leader. In this episode, we need to effing talk to Victoria Peltier. Victoria is the author of the book Unstoppable and Managing Director at Accenture. She's recognized across North America as a dynamic, captivating keynote speaker and a dynamic executive. She spent 20 plus years in the corporate senior leadership at companies like IBM and American Express. And this is the part that I find so fascinating. She was a COO at age 24, president by 35, and CEO at 41. I think I was still getting my first job at 41, but her story of overcoming unspeakable odds to live a life of no excuses has led to moving and incredibly inspiring keynote speeches, and we are so pleased to have you on the show, Victoria. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So what I'd like us to kick us off with is well, explain to our listeners, what do you do and why should anyone keep effing listening to you for the next uh, 30, 40 minutes? <laughs> well... I actually like to describe myself as a multi-potentialite. And I use that because I am interested in a wide variety of interests, passions that will span across not only what I do for a quote-unquote day job, but the side hustles I have, the boards that I engage with, and then in my personal life as a wife, mother, fitness fanatic, foodie, love wine, uh, uh, so all of those things. How did you phrase that? A multi, a multi what? Potentialite. Multi-potentialite. <laughs> so not a socialite, but a multi-potentialite. Okay, I like that. Can you break that phrase down a little bit further for us? Yeah, well, I just, I have an incredible amount of um, diverse interests. Now, I, I, I actually, I say diverse, but I actually think a lot of them are very, very interconnected. And, you know, so by that, it's not only the work that I do, it in itself has been very diverse. And for any of your listeners who would choose to look me up on LinkedIn, they might think it's not tangentially all connected, but it is B2B professional services predominantly um, across most industries. But I've got, you know, focus on a few of those. Uh, My maniacal focus around leadership and culture and leading the businesses and teams that I do. But even then, my, um, side hustles. And so I've always had one since I was a teenager. Uh, the things that were passion projects that somehow grew into a business. Uh, I've also bought businesses, uh, in some case connected to the work I did. I've spent a lot of time in technology companies since I bought a data and analytics company. I saw incredible potential with that, but it was connected to a lot of the work in human potential and some of the employee engagement activities I was doing to the board work that I do. So I've said on not-for-profits that are deeply connected to some of the things that I'm passionate about, as well as for-profit that align to my work. And then the activities that I choose to do outside of the paid engagements are just things that um, either bring me great joy um, or are connected to other things that are meaningful to me, like health and wellness. 
So you mentioned before we we started um, recording that you're a passionate leader. So why are you a passionate leader? Tell us about that. Well, that what I realized um, early on. So as you know, Ken said, I became a you know COO at age 24. This was a massive stretch rule for me, but I started working at 11. By 14, I was the assistant manager of the shoe store that I worked at, and. Uh, while I was in university, I progressed quickly through one of the banks that I um, uh, work for into progressively greater and greater leadership roles. When I got recruited out to that um, role at 24, it was to be the COO for a BPO, business process outsourcing organization. And in many companies, they say, you know, our mess for less. And so they'll pass it off. And so in those kind of environments, uh, you are delivering services for these clients. And at that point, it was predominantly contact center. So think 20 plus years ago, telemarketing, which, you know, not so, you know, amazing, um, you know, role. It wasn't like the landing spot for many people and customer service and technical support. So very large teams. And if we didn't perform well, we didn't make money. And so I needed, not only did I lead thousands of people, but I needed to learn how to become a better leader and, and hire other leaders, develop other leaders to create an environment in which people felt engaged, where they belonged, and that they wanted to be there, even if it was for only a short period of time in between their core job or if they were new immigrants to the country. So that's where it stems from. And uh, I've made mistakes along the way, um, and I've had to learn to do things differently but it actually stems from those very early years leading very large teams. Russell, you've had some background experience working in call centers. So I imagine that you and Victoria would be able to, from your, I'm sorry, you were a managing role at the call center. So I imagine that the two of you would have a, a lot of commiseration to be able to, at the end of the, at the end of the interview here. Um, but Victoria, I wonder if you can chart this progress from, you, you kind of left us off there at 24, but I wonder if you can kind of chart some of that other progress that um, led you through some of those other titles that we talked about. Yeah, so that was my foray, that first role into the world of business to business. And uh, I loved it. It created extreme amount of complexity because you solve a, and, and serve a multitude of stakeholders in that. Not only that, shareholders ultimately of the companies and the executives that you're working for, but you've got clients who pay your bills and then the dynamic of having to serve the needs of either their employees or, the, or their customers. And so the majority of my career since then has been in some form of a B2B professional services environment. And I've just, you know, transformed myself through a variety of different segments of that world. Uh, so those have been, you know, from again, this outsource contact center environment to leaning its way. I actually like to describe it as, you know, consult through operate with technology as the enabler. And so coming in and, you know, working with other client leaders to solve their 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 challenges and so i've you know as i said tangentially it might not look connected but they all very much are and i've been somewhat open to opportunity and where things are going to take me i've been a part of 18 mergers and acquisitions not including the ones i've supported clients on and so those have taken me on the journey that went from pure play bpo to getting recruited to run the shared services for a large organization that was in the travel space. And I knew nothing about travel at that, at that point. Uh, and then I got, you know, from there, 
That was actually what landed me as a Canadian originally in my first role in the US from leading their shared service organization to a multitude of acquisitions to then running all of their North American operations. And the CEO opportunity um, was a result of my own acquisitions. So I acquired a company that, in fact, I did as an investment and I didn't think I would run it as its CEO. But the way life happened and there was another acquisition of a company I'd been working at before that, I went with it and I ran it as its CEO before I then later disposed of the business. So it's interesting when you're talking about the mergers and acquisitions because I, I've I've been through a couple myself. Uh, I, I'd say on the receiving end, it was never sort of my idea. I was sort of managing within the organisation that was being merged with somebody else. And um, so, one if you could share perhaps for our listeners, um, you know, a couple of tips maybe that you've got for somebody who's managing through a merger or acquisition when they're not the person that's leading it, but it's something that's sort of you know, perhaps they're a middle manager who's you know, uh, being asked to drive the change and if they've got those challenges of the people that are for it and the people that are against it. From your experience, maybe what would be a couple of lessons that you learned that would help them? Well, where I've seen it gone horribly wrong is when there's not a focus on and team committed to two areas. One is change management. Many companies think that because they have a project management office there that are capable of working through a lot of the machinations um, that come along with an M&A that they can just leverage that team. It is very, very different and a lot that needs to be planned through that cycle that can be reskilling. It can be the work with people um, and the focus around the, the communication with those um, those people. And then what does that integration look like? So the change management piece is one. And then the other, and this is very much applicable to any level in the organization, uh, uh, from particularly from a leadership perspective, is the communication. There's a significant amount of transparency to build trust with the teams as we go through this M or A. Uh, and, and so by that, I mean being as open and transparent with the team as possible around why decisions are being made and also being okay to put up your hand and say, look, I don't know what I don't know yet. And I want you to be a part of this. I don't want to lose the institutional knowledge that you have coming from this side of the acquisition into the mix. And here's how I'm going to engage you in that process. So change management and the, you know, trusted, authentic, transparent communications. I like the caveat you put around that, that um, allowing a leader to share what they know and being transparent about what they don't know. So often there's the sense of like they know some things that they're not supposed to share or they, uh, they, they, they just themselves don't know. And, but as a leader, we're often put in the position where we have to have all the answers. So being in a place to say, I don't know, that, that, uh, that liminal space of not knowing is really hard for a lot of leaders. So I really appreciate that you just gave our listeners permission to sit in that uncomfortable place. I think we need to. I think that kind of vulnerability is what actually breeds trust with our teams. Yeah. You know, it's true that there, without that without the ability of the leader to share that they're also struggling through some of these changes and transitions, then the, the, the members of the team can often feel alone in that. Yeah, and one of the things that I'd, I'd noticed and when you say about people being vulnerable but also being sort of open about it is that, that often people that you're working with can, can see that you don't have the answer, and they, you know, they, they know that. 
and and, and they can sort of I, I think people got a pretty good sort of bullshit um you know detector and if you can tell the difference between a leader who is being you know open and honest with people and and and, and transparent and somebody who's bullshitting you that yeah that they've they've got a handle on all of this there's some greater scheme you know they haven't and you and so you know it would probably you know, I've found certainly the the erosion of trust really quickly when you're working for somebody who you know doesn't really know everything but doesn't want to admit they don't and you'd much rather they said i don't know and you could perhaps help and perhaps there's something else or say that's okay we're in this together um and that's probably one of the other phrases that we're, we're in this together when you know we're not <laughs> so that's one of those um yeah those phrases we heard a lot during covid i think a lot of people saying we're in this together so uh, that's uh, that sort of resonates with me yeah, we're in this together while you walk towards your Lamborghini and I shuffle off to my Lada. Is not uh, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't it doesn't feel true. Um, Victoria, I wonder if we we're going back to if we go back to where we were charting out your kind of career trajectory. Tell us about this book that you've written and how did you get to the book and what's that book about? You know, as as people who've written a book between Russell and I and and a couple of plays on my part, I'm always fascinated by what uh, that journey that people take. I, uh, I'm a prolific writer. I do contribute to a lot of different um, mediums. And I had been approached a number of years ago to be um, a contributor. So I'm one of several authors in a book called Unstoppable. And that in itself is what sort of stopped me in my tracks and listened to it. That happens to be my personal mantra and life's philosophy about being unstoppable, about living with no excuses. And when I got connected to the publisher's asked me to contribute a chapter. It was actually at a moment in my life where I was starting to open up a little bit more around my lived experience and my why and what's caused me to be as driven, particularly from a career perspective, because I was doing so much coaching and one-on-one. And and although I've been speaking for 20 years, I never opened up until probably 10 years ago talking about some of these personal elements. And so that book was my my opportunity to share a little bit of my story. My chapter, actually the publishers made it the first opening, the opening in the book is called Courage to Live. So it talks not only a little bit about my story, but some of the lessons that I share with people that I've used and leveraged both personally and professionally. And can you give us a hint about what is in that chapter and what are some of these, these barriers and obstacles that you were overcoming? Yeah, I am. Um, you know, a big part of how I evolved as a leader was was being vulnerable and starting to share openly. And I, w- I didn't do it. So at 24, when I was um, the youngest executive, you know, by probably two decades and the only woman at the boardroom table, I never would have shown any vulnerability, any emotions. I thought I needed to wear a mask and be all business all the time. And the ability to, you know, build trusted, authentic relationships and in leading a team to build followership came from starting to, to speak so openly. And so a lot of people were trying to understand, like I'm have been so driven for so long. That first role that I, I took, I was a new mother. I think my my first child was only three months old. And so I'm constantly asked around that dynamic. And so I had to say look like where it comes from. I am born to a drug addicted teenage mother who is exceptionally abusive to me. And I was for, and I went in and out of the child welfare system. I'm fortunate, however, to have been adopted into a you know loving you know family, but lower on the socioeconomic um, uh, uh, status. My dad, a, jan- a school janitor. My mom was a secretary. And my mom said to me when I was, and my mom is the woman that raised me, uh, said to me when I was probably 11 years old, Tori, you need to do better than us. And she meant vocationally, 
She meant socioeconomically. And I'll tell you, Ken, she never needed to say those words to me because I was determined I would be better than my biology or that circumstance. So in that chapter and in some of the keynotes I deliver, I talk about that that lived experience as a, as my why and what fuels me and how one of the key pieces that I attribute a lot of who I am today and both career and personal success to is the ability to be resilient. But I had to learn to do that in a much healthier manner than just shelving everything and putting it to the side. So that's some of what I share. Thank you for sharing that on our podcast here. Uh, I'm sure that there'll be lots of our listeners who will either identify with that or have empathy for that and want to pick up the book. We're going to put the link to that book and to your website in the show notes. Uh, so listeners who are listening, you probably already find it there. Um, but we'll also make sure that we share that information again at the end of the podcast. Um, we're always invite our listeners to talk about some of the most difficult and challenging conversations they had. We're going to take our commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to dig into one of the most challenging or difficult workplace conversations that you've had. And given everything that you've just told us, I think we're in for a treat. So listeners, we'll be right back after this message. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen who's operations manager at Volker Steven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Steven has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gem. And just for the audience's information. We know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. Agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc. are going to take place. And what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So it prepares our leaders in Volker Steven and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. Uh, today, we are speaking with Victoria Peltier. Uh, so welcome back. Um, let's take a look at the most difficult workplace conversation that you've had to conduct, Victoria. Uh, could be with employee, co-worker, customer, or even your boss. So talk us through what happened. <laughs> well, so first of all, this is not um, is not difficult for me. I would say that I have embraced, um, and I love that Kim Scott um, put uh, vernacular to it, radical candor. 
right? So having the, you know, really open, transparent conversations, but doing it from a place of care uh, or wanting to progress and move things forward. I have, I, I can't think of a time, even in those early leadership roles, where I felt uncomfortable doing that. Didn't mean I liked the conversations that I had to have sometimes, but I've always been fairly comfortable and confident doing it. The time where it was probably more difficult uh, was actually when I had to manage and have some of those conversations upwards within the organizations. And I don't shy away from difficult conversations. I jokingly say within you know the workplace, like I want to have a you know healthy debate. We put all cards on the table. I'm not one who likes to have the meeting after the meeting. We have that you know debate, um, and at some point there's a hierarchy for a reason. So someone gets to make the decision if I'm going to challenge something. A number of years ago, and I'll protect the guilty here and will not disclose company or leaders in this, I had to have some conversation around what I was seeing happening within our very large publicly traded organization, which is where I spent the majority of my career. And uh, what I was seeing was we talked a lot about the kind of culture we wanted to work in. It was an organization that won lots of awards and was committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a big part of that is about us creating a sense of belonging. And I believe just, you know, culture is the outcome. You can have the fancy vision, mission statement on the wall of the desired organizational environment you want to work in, but it's a result of policies, procedures, the language, action, and behaviors of its leaders and, and everyone, quite frankly, within the organization. I believe our voice is our power. And so I needed to move forward in the organization. There's a lot of, um, in many companies do this, the toxic star performers. So those, and oftentimes they're in sales, uh, you know, and that's that you need a little bit of the kind of that, that energy to move forward. And there was a leader who was horrific in dealing with members of the team, mine included, who talked about, you know, the waste of you know, air and effort. Um, if you know, if members of the team didn't deliver against him, he would change calendar invites and then get pissed if people didn't show up when he didn't check their calendars and rescheduled five minutes before a meeting. And this was one of I needed to bring this forward. He was a peer of mine, and to bring it forward to our leader uh, to talk about this. And ultimately, um, she was aware of it and acknowledged there'd been some conversation, but wasn't prepared to take any action because, again, of his very top performance. And so I needed to be really clear that this was not the kind of environment I would create for my team. And therefore, I would not allow for any of my team members to engage directly in the activities um, and you know sales activities that he was leading. And th- I saw more and more of this happening w- within the organization. It ultimately, because of that, because I said, I think I said earlier, I'm maniacally focused around leadership and culture. And I... I'm, you know, far too old now to make a decision to like stay in an environment where it doesn't bring me joy. I've got an 80-20 rule. I'm not looking for perfection, but I ultimately made a decision to leave this organization after trying for a significant period of time to be part of the change in moving this forward. And I got calls and calls as I, you know, after submitting my resignation uh, to stay and money and this and that. And I remember saying to one of the most senior leaders in this very large organization that there was no role you can offer me or amount of money that will solve for our current leadership and culture crisis. And that for me was difficult. Um, now, yes, I had another role to lead to, leave to, but I had been having some of these conversations 
prior to when I did not. And being as outspoken as I was against some top performers in the organization, I feared put me at risk and put me in the shit disturber category. Uh, But I felt it was absolutely necessary for my team. I'm their first defender there and trying to create the right kind of environment. But also, quite frankly, I spent a significant amount of time building my brand. And a lot of that is about who I am and my values and what do I stand for. And if I continue to you know, sit in that environment, uh, then I would be a hypocrite. So I had the very difficult conversations. And I really appreciate the emphasis that you put on culture here. Um, so much of the work that, that Russell and I do is around culture. And my own company is called Corporate Culture Shift. So I really focus in and around there. And, and it, it's really important to be able to defend the culture that the organization says they want to create, because otherwise it is, as you described, just purely aspirational. And it's really heartening for a team to see that their leader is standing up and defending them in that way. So good for you for for being able to do that and for really standing up for that. And also, were you alone in that? Did you see anyone else in the organization taking a similar stance or or having those kinds of conversations? Uh, I yes, however, not in the same manner as I chose to. The you know very large organization with a human resource. And there's a, a, a division within the HR team called employee relations, which is where complaints and things will go to. So a lot of people were bringing it through to that. It's almost quasi anonymous, at least when things get investigated to try and raise it without being so head on and having conversations with the leaders who employed, promoted, you know, um, uh, applauded these kind of leaders. So there were very few that were taking the avenue I was and choosing to go this alternate, slightly easier route. What I'd like to do, if I may, just sort of take you back in there. So if I've heard correctly, so this was a a peer of yours, um, you know, high performer, well thought of from his performance, not necessarily his behavior in the workplace. Um, And you were speaking to like your boss, who was boss boss for both of you, um, and you said that they you know, were aware of the situation, but maybe a little reluctant because he was a high performer. So how did they take it when you came in and, and sort of challenged them on um, what seems to be on them not addressing the situation? What would, what was their response? I think, um, you know, her, her, her response was one of acknowledging that this, uh, this peer um, was well connected within our organization. So, you know, to defend her, um, to some extent here, this wasn't solely her decision to make. Uh, And there were many factors. And that, however, as I then started to have conversations, I I actually had five or six, you know, lots of these companies are highly matrixed. Uh, I had five or six different bosses of which she was only one of them. Uh, And so when I had probably with the most senior person, uh, and by the way, this was only, this was one example of many, and I wouldn't choose to leave an organization for that reason alone, like that single instance alone, but it was one of several that I could point to very directly. And, and so when I had the conversation, I think, you know, my, this direct leader, she acknowledged it, but just the connectedness of this person with others, and she wasn't necessarily prepared to take on some of those. And so I think I, I, I always kind of knew a little bit around her personality and style. So I wasn't shocked or surprised that that was her response, quite frankly. And so I used the opportunity as the organization was actually embarking on upon a fairly large transformation. And that's in part where I put my hand up and said, like, 
I, I happen to be in a business. I've been leading, you know, um, workforce related businesses for many, many years. I said, I do this for our clients. Can I help with ours? Uh, and so I use that as a, a jumping off point for me to have the dialogue with many other people within our organization. But yes, Russell, I was able to point back when I was exiting to this being one of probably three or four unique instances where they didn't take action despite the fact that there was knowledge, awareness, and people like me speaking up. Okay. So what I'd be interested in is is how perhaps you know, you've dealt with this when you've been in that more senior position. Um, because I'm, I, the, the example you've given is one that I've come across, and I'm sure many of our listeners have, you know, the high performer who's great for the business and maybe brings in loads of money or loads of customers to the organization, but their behavior in and around towards other people is is shitty. Um, so a lot of people, you can understand why they don't want to tackle that because we don't want to kill the golden goose. We'll just accept they're being, being an asshole. Uh, how have you dealt with that if you've had that situation yourself when you've been there, their boss? I've had, I, I've had that um, with both someone that reported to me, but a member of my team came to me to have conversations around how challenging it was to work with this individual and someone who was a direct report of a direct report of mine. And in the the one the direct report of a direct report, it was like fairly well known for this individual. But I I very much honor working through a coaching and development process, performance improvement process. And I know the leader on my team was a little uncomfortable having some of the dialogue. And I regularly had skip level meetings with my team, so I use that as an opportunity myself um, to have some conversations with this person. Uh, and he actually he went through a performance plan and wasn't successful. And I, I made the decision again, I knew it was a discomfort for my leader who had uh, my direct report who hadn't done it before. So ultimately, I'm actually the one who delivered the message in the news. Um, I took accountability at the end of the day. Um, you know, this needed to happen within our organization, it was supported by the person on my on my team. And then the one who reported to me sort of, um, the peer level who reported it to me, uh, I took took action by having lots of listening sessions um, and talking to others who might have, without making it so well known, what information I was seeking, but having conversations with others who engaged with him and then had the conversation. And a big part of it was around my expectations uh, for us as a leadership team and how we showed up and that. And I tried to bring it back to my my earlier you know experience as a leader myself, where I made maybe some of the mistakes that I could see he might be. Um, and have that kind of a, a dialogue. But I'm one who, as I said earlier, like I'm not going to shy away from having the conversations that need to be had. And in this second story that you're talking about, where you were the leader and you were having the conversation, how did it land with that individual? Did, did Is this the one where we get the Disney ending? <laughs> um, the the Where I was the, the leader of his leader did not end well. Uh, after many, many months and working through this, unfortunately, we needed to... Um, let him go. Uh, but the other one had um, somewhat, at least of my time at that organization, had um, a little bit of the Disney ending where there was a visible kind of turnaround and demonstrably people would say, I can see he's showing up and he's being you know, very different and talking and engaging with us in a very different way. Did he keep that up after I left? I don't know. I'd like to think so. Hope so. You know, it's like we need the end credits of the Disney movie where like, you know, they have the, the, the text against the black screen that tells you what happened in the future. <laughs> well, the one that actually, what I will say positive that in that particular organization, 
um, weren't known typically for doing any kind of performance management. They just shuffled people around in different, a large organization to shuffle them around. Interestingly, I had the HR business partner who supported the business unit that I ran come to me and thank me. And I said, for doing my job? Um, but it's just, it was so bold that they weren't, that organization wasn't typically known for. And by the way, it was the one I ended up resigning from that I referenced in the earlier one. They've just not known for that kind of action um, to be taken, period. So I think that is like massive, like Disney headlines in terms of, you know, demonstrating for my, for my team and having actually some of the highest employee engagement results as a result of that action and leadership from the front. There it is. There's the Disney ending, the highest employee engagement results. That's what we were looking for. Yeah, it'll, but, but to hear of an organization that just shuffles people around instead of dealing with the issues, that's unusual. Never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah, well, it, well it's, great, it's great to hear. And what I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear has been somebody who's, you know, been in and around the, the, the leadership space for, for many years. It's great to hear you actually addressing those those issues, particularly around that high performer, because it's one that I've come across myself a number of times and you know, seen people just avoid it and give people like a free pass to behave as they like simply because um, of their performance and what they bring to the company in, in finance and treating some of the financially and treating some of the uh, junior members of staff appallingly. Um, I, I have to say, I did come across one example um, with a, a guy seems a little bit like your sort of middle example there, where you know, there had been some acknowledgement that they could do things differently. And what he agreed with his team was that he uh, gave everybody um, like the sort of soccer uh, yellow and red cards that they could keep. And at meeting, when they were interacting with him at meetings, that if his behavior stepped over the line to what they were, they could just hold up a yellow card. And what he would say is, uh, am I being an asshole? And people would say, yeah, you are a bit. And he would go, okay. And they they sort of made a little bit of a joke about it between him and his, his team. But what it did do is they were calling him out in a way that they felt comfortable doing, and he was prepared to listen. Now, he was never going to change the way in which he interacted. And as we say, his language was quite um, fruity most of the time, but he was prepared to at least give it a go um, and except that some of the things that he said and did weren't acceptable and he did make the effort. So I think sometimes we don't always have the Disney ending, but we get some sort of uh, you know, workable solution that we could go with. <laughs> I agree. You know, Victoria's story puts me in mind of a story that was shared by one of our other guests, Kieran Dhaliwal, who talked about being in an organization that wasn't living up to its values, calling people out on the values, and then ultimately she made the decision to leave. But the consequence was that everybody else followed her. Like the uh, almost that team that she'd been working with was eviscerated because the organization refused to address the one person that they needed to address. And as a result, they lost far too many good people. And so, uh, Victoria, as we've charted us through a couple of different stories now, I'm just curious, In, in once you've left the organization, you know, I, I presume you, you haven't cut all ties with them. Um, what happened to those organizations afterwards? Was there an exodus? Was there, did, the, did the toxic culture simply perpetuate? What was the end game in those stories? So, you know, the, one of the more difficult decisions also about leaving that particular organization was the team I left behind. The one with a very high employee engagement, we had we were very very well and tightly you know together, and we're also one of the best performing units. And so hard for me to leave them, but I knew it was the right decision for myself. 
And so I stayed, you know, in close connection, certainly with almost all of my direct reports. And in they had I not had a non-solicitation, I'm sure they would have all wanted to def of employees to, you know, come with me in many asks. So I had to say, like, they, you know where I am, you can see me on LinkedIn, but I, I I can't help you get a job here, or that company will come and sue me. Uh, so but what I saw was very quickly people trying to, you know, leave. And I, you know, spoke to others that were engaged around some of those particular leaders. And that company has now lost some phenomenal people as a result of not addressing this leadership culture toxicity crisis that they have. And so it, uh, and I, and I'm not sure, you know, when they've had lots of other senior, senior top C-suite changes. And I think they just shuffled the deck chairs. So maybe at some point they're going to learn. And what tends to happen then, of course, is when when you're pandering to that toxic employee and then all of the, uh, I guess, non-toxic or other high performers start leaving, then all you're left with are those toxic employees. And, and incentives drive. And so this is where, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, working on with C-suite and board members around the transformation in their businesses. And again, that could be M&A, it could be a digital transformation, whatever it is, but but the intersection becomes their personal involvement around leadership and, and, and the environment that they're creating. And one of the things I spend a lot of time with them on as well is their incentive models, because that drives, I mean, how, how people get paid drives behavior and action and can be a determining factor in the kind of culture that's driven there. So they need to be changing those models as much as they need to be taking action and performance managing, you know, those toxic people. Yeah, because I think there's that point you're saying, you know, people do what they're rewarded for doing. And then the other part is you've got the, you know, the the, the people coming up through the, through the ranks are watching those more senior leaders to see what they do and what they don't do. And if they see somebody behaving in a way that gets them rewarded, and they also then they're likely to go down that route. And also, if they see that beha- behavior is not being challenged, then people say, "Well, I, I suppose that's just the way that we can we can do things because nobody nobody really says anything." And I think it's, it's quite quick, can't you? You can get into that real toxic culture that an organization might might find itself in. So we always like to close our um, our conversations uh, with maybe you telling us about a topic that you're working on that you think people should. Uh, currently know about um and our listeners should care about so what are you working on at the moment you'd like to share uh i well as we're getting ready to head into the month of june i know this might come out and towards the end of june or later it is pride month in many parts around the world and i am um, heavily heavily committed to work around diversity equity inclusion I actually came out as bisexual at age 14 in a Catholic high school uh, and married a woman. I'm now married to a man and one of my two children is trans. So it's also highly personal uh, for me. And it's a big part of the reason why my DE&I focus I've had for, you know, my my entire career, um, quite, quite honestly. And so I, but I find myself talking about it more, not just because we came out of women's history month in March and June is, is pride month. Um, but because there's lots of layoffs that are happening right now, and there's been so much focus on DEI and attracting diverse talent, and what we see is um, companies are contracting and laying off. It's often last in, first out. So talking to leaders about being really strategically intentional around how to prevent all of that leakage of the diverse talent they've brought in 
as they go through this exercise and focusing on skill discreetly versus job titles holistically and potential uh, in the diverse talent that they have. And so that's where I'm spending a lot of time, you know, talking to other business leaders for my sort of quote unquote day job, but then also in terms of the work I do as a speaker, talking a lot about what this lived experience is. Um, Although I still have privilege as a white woman born in North America, but the different intersections of diversity that I and others bring to the table and the richness it brings to our workplaces and communities. Thanks for sharing that. Those are topics that are close to my own heart as well. I have been volunteering for a couple of years pre-pandemic with the Rainbow Railroad uh, Association that helps bring LGBTQ immigrants to Canada. And um, so there's just hearing your your point that if if it's going to be last in, first out, then you're going to lose all of that talent that you've been trying to reach out to. It really hits the nail on the head. And so you've got to find different ways to approach those kinds of difficult decisions and those difficult conversations that one is making. So thanks for bringing that up as we, as we'll be in the middle of pride month. That's just awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode. Listener, we hope you enjoyed it. Remember to subscribe via Apple podcasts or Spotify, share the link with your friends, colleagues, and your enemies also, because they can probably learn as much from the podcast as anyone else. And you can always reach out to Russell and I at the email address in the show notes. Be sure to reach out to Victoria and uh, and also uh, check out her book on her website, also in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you again soon. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>